You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. We have essentially taken a political problem and made it a personal problem, which is that we still do not provide mandatory paid family leave. We still, as a society, do not provide childcare in any meaningful fashion. We still, as a society, do not provide help with elder care in any meaningful fashion. Because, as a society, we expect this burden to be on women. To the self-made and the self-sufficient, our partner, Edelman Financial Engines, can tailor investment solutions for the wealth that you're building. As a Her Money listener, you'll get a complimentary financial plan when you call 833-304-PLAN or visit planefe.com slash her money. Hey, everybody. I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining me here today on Her Money. Our relationships, not with the people in our lives, but with our jobs, they have changed so much over the past few years. Before the pandemic, wow, you would see news headlines everywhere about hustle culture, and it seemed everyone had a side gig or was grinding away for their next promotion. Post-2020, many people realized that their relationships with work were not so healthy, and American work culture changed dramatically. Suddenly, it seemed like we were all talking about work-life balance and burnout and the importance of mental health in the workplace. By the way, about time on that. The great resignation came about in part because people were no longer afraid to demand the salaries and the benefits that they deserved. They weren't afraid to go somewhere else. But Lately, I've started to wonder if we're on the precipice of another big shift in the power dynamics of work. Companies like Amazon and Google have had mass layoffs. Many economists still say we should be bracing for a recession sometime this year. Quiet quitting was followed by quiet firing, which, by the way, if you haven't heard, is when an employer intentionally creates a bad work environment in the hopes that you'll quit, also they can avoid the costs of letting you go. And now, yes, as if you needed another vocab word, there is also quiet hiring when companies saddle their workers with more responsibilities so they can actually avoid hiring more staff. All of this, it's just made me wonder, has employee empowerment taken a backseat to some more worrying workplace trends? Today, we're going to dig into this. We're going to look at how our society thinks about work, how it's changed since the pandemic, how we can make sure that all those really good gains that we made as workers stick around for the long term, and we are doing it with Helene Olin, who many of you I know have heard of. She is a longtime journalist covering politics, economics, workplace culture, women's issues. She's an opinion columnist for the Washington Post and also the author of a book called The Index Card, Why Personal Finance Doesn't Have to Be So Complicated. Helene, I can't believe this is the first time we're having you on the show. Well, thank you for having me on. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm excited to have you because late last year, I clipped a column that you wrote about the Great Resignation called How the Pandemic Ended America's Bad Romance with Work. And I was really struck by your labeling of our work pre-pandemic as what Lady Gaga called a bad romance. So tell me about that and why did you label it that way? 
I've become very fascinated with the world, the pandemic, and our response to the pandemic made. And I've been watching this play out in all sorts of different areas. We've seen it play out in education. We've seen it play out in diversity efforts. And we've seen it play out in healthcare. And we've seen it play out in the workforce. And because I tend to write a lot about labor and economics and politics and money, no surprise, a lot of my attention ultimately sort of began to focus in on what was going on with work. And I was writing a bit about some of the strikes or, that were going on and the union organizing that was going on earlier last year. I wrote about Starbucks and their very surprised attempt at unionization, which I can talk about a little bit more in a minute. And over time, what I began to realize was that our relationship to work had shifted, and it had shifted very dramatically. And it traces back to about 15 years ago when somebody I was friendly with wrote a novel about her time working for one of the movie studios. And I read the book and I said, I wrote a note to her and I said, it's like you wrote a gothic romance, but the gothic was work, not a guy. Mm -hmm. And I never quite forgot that image of how, of how I described our work relationship. And I became very fascinated over time with how work had kind of subsumed our lives. You described it as dysfunctional and profoundly unequal, our relationship with work. It was, and we didn't realize it, right? And what was really going on as the pandemic and our reaction to it kind of revealed was that in many cases, this religion of work, I mean, I don't know how else quite to describe it, was actually about necessity. And when we took a step back, we realized that it didn't quite have to be this way. And a couple of things really shifted. And the first is, was the actual trauma of how we shut down in March of 2020. Well, to me, it was a forced vacation. It wasn't a vacation, right? But it was a forced, you can't go into the office. You can't sit in that chair from eight in the morning until seven at night because it's not there for you anymore. It's almost like the bad boyfriend who turned his back. Right. And the way it happened was very dramatic and sudden, right? So I divide the you know, groups roughly into three different cohorts, right? And they're roughly equal in size, but, you know, with some variation. The first group is the people you just described. The second group are people who were that group or were waiters or were in service industries of some sort, who, if you would ask them on February 29th of 2020, if they had a secure job or not, they would have said yes. And everybody would have agreed with them. It would not have been a delusional take on their part. And yet within four weeks, they're one of the more than a million people filing for unemployment every week that suddenly comes out of basically nowhere, right? So their relationship to their work is abruptly severed out of nowhere, right? And, you know, they realize there's so much scrap heap, frankly. The third group, and this is also very important, are the people who are deemed essential workers. They are doctors and nurses, but they are also, for the most part, lower wage workers. They're the people that the people, the two other groups reliant on staying at home that are congratulating themselves on being really good and not seeing anybody are actually reliant on these people going out into the world and putting themselves in danger. You know, there's supermarket clerks, they're the delivery people, they're the meat packers, they are 
you know, they are the people who keep our world functioning, basically. Where are we now, right? The pandemic forced the end for all of these groups in some way of the habits and the behaviors, maybe the attitudes that they had taken upon themselves, taken into their own lives. It's almost three years since the start of the pandemic. Where are we now with work and with the quiet quitting and the quiet hiring and the quiet firing? What does the landscape look like today? We are in a completely different world. My theory for why, and then I'll come back to your question, for why we have all of these terms isn't just that it's TikTok and it's cool and a bunch of, you know, Gen Zers like my kids and presumably your kids, I'm assuming, are Gen Zers, you know, are, are like on TikTok doing all this cool stuff. It's that it's actually an entirely new world for us because for 40 years, we have lived in a world where workers had very limited power and it was mostly employer power. And the reason for that is partly legislative. You know, Reagan gets elected, the world sort of shifts in favor of capital. But it's also the fact that you have this mass group known as the baby boom, who for 40 plus years is very dominant in the workforce, is this outsized cohort, and basically every group underneath them lives in their shadow. So one of the things that as we're talking about this traumatic shift in the workforce that happens, that also happens is the boomers begin to leave the workforce in an accelerated way. We've always known this moment was going to come. If you read demographic literature, if you read employment literature, we always knew this moment would come. But we're up against it, right? I mean, 2024 is what they call peak 65. It is the year that more of the baby boomers will turn 65 than any other year. Not that everybody's leaving the workforce at 65, because many people cannot afford to do that. But, you know, we're getting there. You know, we're sort of piecing this together, right? Because it's, you know, different theories and strands of information, right? But what it looks like the pandemic and the shutdowns did was accelerate the retirement of the baby boomers. So the result is, is you very suddenly have this opening that didn't exist. And it accelerated the pullout of other people because things feed on each other, right? As workers have more power. So you start seeing... There was a study that came out a couple of weeks ago. You start seeing people are working less. And the group that is working less more than anybody in terms of putting less hours in at the work, I mean, not unemployed itself, are, and this is a very surprising one, are college-educated men, which shows, I think, also a great unhappiness with what had been going on previous to the pandemic and the workforce. But the point is, is one of the reasons they're doing it is because they can do it, right? Long COVID probably plays a role in this as well. Some people flat out don't want to go back because of COVID. And I should add one other factor, which is the lack of immigration. We shut off immigration for a while. So all of this sort of combines to change the workforce as we know it. And once these things start in motion, they are very hard to push back. One of the things that had stayed with me while I'm talking about remarks that had stayed with me from earlier is many years ago, my father had once said something to me about the 1960s and early 70s, which I never forgot, which he said, everybody romanticizes the period, but he said, one reason people dropped out was because you could drop back in at any time. There was a labor shortage. So if you went off to a commune for two years, you could come back, cut your hair, shave your beard, and somebody would hire you, right? And I was like, yes. 
And that's kind of what has happened to us. Like, and I thought about it. I realized we had never, you or I had never, or anybody we know pretty much, you know, our age or younger, had ever experienced this in our adult lifetime. Before we started this conversation, you mentioned that today there were layoffs at the Washington Post. And I mentioned just a couple of examples of the layoffs that have made news recently. And it's not just the tech companies, it's startups that overhired. It is, it's a lot of different companies that just got out a little bit over their skis. And we know that is starting to make people nervous, at least a little more nervous than they were. So where do you think we are now with all of these new terms that are now in the vernacular with people who have jobs but who are starting to read the headlines with a labor market that still by the numbers looks pretty strong? Where are we? I think we're still in a labor market that by the numbers looks pretty strong. The fact is most of these people who are getting laid off are getting rehired elsewhere pretty quickly. Tech, for all its outsized importance in our life, is a fairly small portion of the labor market. And it seems like these people are in fairly high demand in other sectors of the labor market. Will they get paid quite as much as in tech? I can't answer that for you. But there doesn't so far seem to be a massive crisis of unemployment. We keep hearing it predicted. One begins to suspect there's some degree of wish fulfillment going on by a certain member of like CEOs and whatnot. But the fact is, is we still have a lot of, you know, worker power in this market. I would say the real issues with whether it can persist or not are what the government will ultimately do to, say, buttress unions. You think that unions and more unions are the key to maintaining this sort of worker power? It's certainly one of the major keys. But the other major key is actual law itself, right? So you're starting to see some positive movement out of Washington. For instance, last week or the week before, the Federal Trade Commission is moving to ban non-competes. This is a huge thing if it holds. I mostly live in California these days where non-competes have been banned pretty much for several decades now. That's why Silicon Valley, by the way, is in California because the ability to move jobs is central to the buildup of an industry, right? So, but this is also central to people's ability to actually earn more money versus being locked out and being told, oh, you know, you're driving a a truck for, you know, John's Pizza. Sorry, you can't go work for Domino's, right? So these are really important laws that have, you know, that regulations about more than laws that are starting to come through. And, you know, if they hold, because of course there's threats to challenge them, they're going to make an enormous difference in the workplace. As part of your reporting over the years for the Washington Post and for other places that you've written for, I know you've interviewed Americans from all over the country in a lot of different jobs, from healthcare to retail to finance. And they've had, as we all do, these unique experiences with their careers. Are there any particular stories from women that stick with you, that have stuck with you? I mean, the thing that I really stuck with me, and and I think it's still playing out, though women do seem to be back at work, was how women got hit by the shutdowns. Um, It was first, they were disproportionately hit by the layoffs themselves because service industries were disproportionately hit and women disproportionately work in service industries. So that was the first part. The second part that really stuck with me was how 
we more or less just expected women to somehow go home, manage their kids, manage their jobs, and this was going to be okay. And it sort of shocked me that this was not a bigger deal than it was. And it struck me as in some ways a return to a more conservative society where we expected women to put their families first. And I mean, we always put our families first, right? I mean, I don't mean it like, you know, yeah, just leave, abandon your families and go work, right? Or go to Europe or whatever. But I think there was this sort of old fashioned expectation that women would just somehow do it all. And for, you know, that's why the women's workforce participation rate fell fairly dramatically during the heart of the pandemic, because women can't do it all. Well, I think it was that, but also the gender wage gap that is incredibly persistent, right? If you are managing a family and you are looking at how to hold that family together during the pandemic when the kids have to be homeschooled, if I'm doing the math on my family, the person who's earning the lower wage is going to be the one who stays home. And that is likely to be the woman still. Right. But it's also that we expect the woman to do it. So you see, even when you look at, you know, who's earning what, that women still do more even when they earn more money. And I think there was just this sort of rampant expectation that people would put up with it. And to be fair, I mean, people did for a a lot, long time. And that really bothered me a lot. I felt that this was just kind of taking for granted that women will, you know, put their children first. And I think the two other things really popped up during that period that you started to see the return of something that I remember from 20 years ago, and I'm sure you remember as well, of this whole idea that like pulling out of the workplace was a choice. And that, you know, I'm choosing to give up my $100,000 a year job, you know, and you would literally see, you know, well, maybe women are saying something about this. And maybe they were, but they were mainly saying, I physically can't do this. Or as I like to sometimes whine when my husband or my editor asks me something, I don't have a clone. Sorry. But (laughs) I think that was really problematic. The other thing was, of course, in the end, for all the talk, the expanded child care tax credit expired. There was no additional help with child care, ultimately. And there was no major push for more caretakers. And that encompasses not just children, but people, and I will raise my hand and say I'm in this category at this point in my life, people who are dealing with elderly parents, which again is disproportionately female. Though I will say for the record here, my husband actually does as much as I do with my parents. So he's amazing. You know, mine does as well. And it's my parent right? That my husband is stepping up and greatly, greatly appreciated. Helene, I want to take a quick break. I want to remind everyone that this podcast is sponsored by our partner Edelman Financial Engines. When we come back though, I want to dig into how women come back from here, right? Let's acknowledge that we took a step back and let's talk about how we get back on the path to financial and work security. But before we do that, 
Our partner Edelman Financial Engines makes this show possible and they can tailor investment solutions for the wealth that you are building and growing and protecting. Their investment management approach is based on Nobel Prize winning research. Their planners don't sell products to earn commissions, period. So no matter where you are trying to go next, I think it's a good step to take to see how they can help you get there. Go to planefe.com slash hermoney and you can get started. I'm talking with Helene Olin, opinion columnist at the Washington Post. Let's move people ahead. Let's talk about, yeah, we did take a very big step back, but how do women in particular take what has happened, perhaps learn a little something from it, and move forward? And what can we do as workers to protect ourselves at a time when it looks like some companies at least might be coming to a point in time where they're less willing to give? I mean, to me, this is ultimately more a political problem than a personal problem. We have essentially taken a political problem and made it a personal problem, which is that we still do not provide, you know, mandatory paid family leave. We still, as a society, do not provide childcare in any meaningful fashion. We still, as a society, do not provide help with elder care in any meaningful fashion. Anybody who thinks childcare is hard, just wait, by the way, until you start navigating elder care. Trust me, you won't know what hit you. And we just sort of dump it on families. And until that changes in a meaningful way, because as a society, we expect this burden to be on women. I think it's going to be hard to make further meaningful progress from where we are now. That being said, I do suspect that one thing the labor pressures of the great resignation will do is right now we know women never really recover from taking time out with a child, right? And if the pressures remain great enough, it's possible that will shift in some way because employers will have to give. We have lived for 40 years in an unforgiving employment environment where any step off the straight and narrow can really just cause permanent damage and is likely to cause permanent damage, I should say. And as we have more power, whether it's through legal means or whether it is through the simple fact that employers can't find enough people to hire And I will point out here the phrase quiet firing is a perfect example of this because previous to 2020, there was no quiet firing because you could rehire somebody or find somebody else to hire in five minutes, right? Quiet firing is partly a function of desperation. And that is likely to shift more power to people who want to stay in. But on the other hand, you know, you could also make an argument that As wages go up, you might see more pressure on families to have one parent in the workforce because they'll financially be able to do it again. It's always worth remembering the two groups that have the lowest female participation rate are the low income and the high income, right? It's the middle that works. And that's necessity in many cases. And then, of course, for low income women, it's they can't afford to in many cases. But for upper income women, it's that 
in some ways, the costs of working outweigh the gains, at least in the short term. Long term is a different issue. When it comes to holding on to your power in the workplace, we talked a little bit earlier, you alluded to Starbucks, which you wrote about. Is organizing important? Has organizing become more important? And do individuals have the ability to organize in a way that we didn't five or 10 years ago? Uh, The answer is yes and no. The laws have not changed significantly. So really, the answer is no. What we do have is an administration, that's the Biden administration, that has been much more favorable towards unions and has made more, the National Labor Relations Board has made more favorable rulings towards them. What seems to be going on is a couple of different things coming in. And I should say union membership is not actually moving because for all the talk, right, it takes years to organize a union. So we won't really know how successful this push is. But what we do know is taking the actual organizing itself out of the picture for a moment. The ability to talk is a form of power in a way. And one place you can really see this and you're starting to see real movement is in laws where companies now have to post salary ranges, which I find fascinating, right? Because, you know, this has always been such a secret, right? What are other people earning? And we know from the little bit of academic work that has been done, and it's there's not tons right now because this is all still fairly new, that there does seem to be an upward push in salaries as a result of this. And intriguingly, a slightly downward push at the higher end of the earning spectrum, right? So this might actually turn out to be a thing that reduces some inequality. But the ability to organize, the ability to share information with your coworkers as a form of power. Yeah, pay transparency and publishing salary ranges is something that we've been keeping on top of in our newsletters, in the Her Money newsletter. So for anybody listening who's not a regular subscriber to our free newsletters, they're free, go to hermoney.com and just make sure that you are on our list. As we head toward the end of this conversation, I want to come back to something that you talked about in your piece, which is remote workers and protections for remote workers. What I sensed underneath your comment, and you mentioned that there needed to be more protections for remote workers, like being paid to send emails off the clock, even if you're sending those emails from home. And I sense that while remote work has been great in many, many ways, it's also blurred these boundaries between work time and free time. And that can result in employees being taken advantage of. What do you think remote workers need to do to take back a little bit of control over their clock? I mean, I would say that some of this is exaggerated and it's not exaggerated because it's not going on, but it's exaggerated because it's not like we weren't being blasted by emails at 10 o'clock at night before the pandemic, right? You just had to commute on top of dealing with those emails. So... By definition, this is a good thing that we can keep people at home if they want to be at home, right? And the studies show the vast majority of people do want to be at home at least part of the time. But yes, I mean, the thing that interests me even more than emails on some level, though I think it's important, is the burgeoning world of supervision of workers at home, right? And I mean, and like spyware, 
basically, where employees are now being monitored and, you know, really crazy stuff. Like if you don't click on a computer every three seconds, you're going to be judged. And things that are being monitored, you know, how long your calls are and how long are your bathroom breaks and stuff that is kind of dehumanizing, frankly, and also probably counterproductive on some level, because one of the issues is that when you're working for workers who are being monitored on a computer, work is intellectual. It's not something shooting down a factory line, which in and of itself takes thought, right? So it's very hard to say, wait, is somebody working if they're staring into space or not? I mean, I frankly could spend, you know, an hour staring into space before I write an article. Where am I working? Yes. Yeah, it reminds me of those metrics. I had to take a driver's safety course because I got a ticket and I wanted to get the points off my license. And when you take those driver's safety courses remotely, they want to make sure that you are on your computer, right? That you're not walking away from the computer. So they ask you to answer a question every five minutes. It's dehumanizing and a little ridiculous. But if it comes around from your employer, it's going to be a lot harder to take. Helene, leave us with a piece or two of advice that we can take. Things that are not in the hands of legislators, that are things that we actually can control about our own work lives to make ourselves feel a little better, do a little better, and perhaps put us in the driver's seat of our own work bus. I think the way I've been thinking about this lately is in journalism, we have a thing called a nut graph where you have to say what the point of the article is. And I think a lot of us get caught in this kind of treadmill a lot of the time and we forget what the nut graph is of our work. Why are we here? Is it for money? What are we getting out of this? Is there a way we can improve our situation? And what would that improvement consist of? Would it consist of you know, figuring out a better way to communicate with our coworkers? Does it consist of a way of changing jobs or changing professions? And I think one of the things the Great Resignation has done, and we've seen it, people are doing this, is they're rethinking their nut graph of work. And I think it's an exercise that all of us could stand to do. And I suspect it would improve a lot of our work lives if we could all do that or all did do it. Yeah. And not just once. I think this is something that you should probably go through every couple of years. Helene, a pleasure to talk to you. Tell our listeners where they can find out more about you and your work. Um, You can find me at the Washington Post on the opinion page, or you could also find me at a place where I don't spend quite as much time as I did in the past, thank goodness, on Twitter, at Helene Olin. Thank you so much for being here today. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. Before we dive into today's mailbag, a reminder that Her Money is also supported by BCU. We are grateful for that. BCU is a credit union providing a wide array of financial products and services for its members. So if you are currently exploring the auto market, you should know BCU offers financing and refinancing options, as well as an exclusive auto buying service that can save you both time and money. You can learn more at BCU you.org. And her money's Chelsea Zoo is joining me today for our mailbag. Hey, Chelsea, how are you? Hey, Jean, I'm really good. I loved everything Helene had to say. It was so interesting to hear her go like really deep into the history, because that's obviously something that I wasn't there for. 
yeah, to me, her comments about the 60s and the 70s, how we could drop out because we have the ability to drop in was not something that I had thought of, but it rings incredibly true. I'm wondering from your perspective and you're solidly Gen Z, are you hearing your friends talk about quiet quitting, quiet hiring, quiet firing, or at least just headlines? I think I definitely hear people talking about it, but I think it's kind of a weird place that we're in specifically, me and my friends. I think we all just graduated college, you know, and we're working our very first jobs. And I think from that perspective, it doesn't, you know, we're still figuring things out a lot of the time. So I don't think we have the know-how to really know, like, how to, like, assess whether a potential workplace is good for us or not. I think all of us are still learning. So it's definitely good I'm glad that I have the opportunity like through this job to hear from other people how that works because yeah, I think when you're really brand new into the workforce, you can hear people say things about worker empowerment or like you should be able to walk away from a job if it's not serving you, but that's hard to do if it's your very first job. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, it took me several jobs and I've watched my daughter and I think it's taken her several jobs to start to be aware of the fact that she's valuable, right? And it's only when you become aware that you are valuable, that you would actually be difficult to replace in any economy. Do you sit in your power a little more? And do you start to feel that it is okay to ask for things, whether it's a day off or whether it's to go to a doctor's appointment. I mean, I've watched some of the young women in my life who have gotten COVID recently be really nervous about taking PTO. You're sick. It's a sick day. It's COVID. Take the time off. But it's hard when you're new in a job, when you're new in a career, it's harder to ask for things, even things that I think people who have been at it a long time would think are incredibly reasonable. Yeah, one of my friends just started her career as a teacher, which is obviously a really hard job and teachers take on a lot. And I'm trying to tell her, you know, through all the things that I learn through my job, like you should stand up for yourself. You should not feel obligated to spend hours after work grading papers or, you know, working on projects. So I'm trying to get her to realize that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're a good friend to have. Let's turn to our mailbag and answer a couple questions. Yeah, for sure. So both of our questions today come from our private Hermony Facebook group. So the first question says, hi, Jean, I'm recently engaged and looking for ways to save money and slash costs since everything wedding is so expensive. Many of the tips I found online only offer an option to shave off a few hundred dollars here and there, but what I'm hoping for is a solution for saving up to half the cost of a wedding or more. One thing I've noticed as I've been comparing prices is that inflation has made all things wedding-related much, much more expensive, and I didn't think it could get much worse. Do you have any resources to recommend for budget-savvy brides who are looking to spend nowhere near the not.com average going rate of $28,000? Thank you. I do have a few suggestions. I don't know that you're going to like them. Look, the first suggestion is when it comes to your wedding, and congratulations, by the way, you're getting married. That's really, really exciting. But think about what's the most important thing to you. Is it the food? 
Is it that you can have your entire extended family there? Is it the dress? Is it the flowers? I remember when I got married for the first time, my mother-in-law-to-be was 100% in on the flowers. They were hugely important to her. So we put an effort into those flowers. They were peonies, which are my favorites, and they were spectacular. But if you decided that flowers were not the most important thing to you, then you could really save a whole lot of money on flowers by putting some pretty candles in the middle of the table and calling it a day. If you decided that really the most important thing to you is to have the people that you want to have at your wedding, well, then maybe you compromise and you don't do it on a Friday or a Saturday night when venues and service people are at their most expensive, but instead you do it on a weeknight or you do a brunch, which is far less expensive to cater than a dinner. Maybe you decide that really the most important thing to you is location. Then you could save an awful lot of money by doing it somewhere remote where not a lot of people are likely to come. Quite frankly, the easiest way to save a lot of money is to just cut your guest list. And you could have a very small wedding and then a very large, more casual party down the road. I would encourage everyone, as Chelsea pointed out, this question came from our private Her Money Facebook group. There are a hundred suggestions from the members of the Facebook group for incredibly creative and wonderful ways to save just based on this question. And so if you're not a member of our private Facebook group, go ahead, join it. You're going to get an awful lot out of it. Yes, I also second that. And I think that this question is such a good one. I actually learned completely separate from this recording that weddings had an average cost of $28,000. And I'm many years away from getting married, but that just blew me away. So obviously, I'm looking forward to getting married someday, but I'm not looking forward to that kind of stress and thinking about the finances. The way that many brides and grooms organize their weddings today layer on cost after cost after cost that people, not to make myself sound ancient, but people like me who got married decades ago think are kind of ridiculous. When we look at these bachelor and bachelorette parties that have to happen in a location, when we look at multiple showers, when we look at the fact that an engagement now is an event where families are expected often to travel and show up for these things, we're talking about many plane tickets, we're talking about many outfits to wear, we're talking about many different food oriented shindigs. When I got married, again, the first time, but also the second time, and just for the record, one way to save money on a wedding is to only do it once. But when I got married, I had a bridal shower, which was lovely. My aunt threw it for me and I had a wedding and that was it. And it was fine. And so by not buying into all of these ancillary events or just deciding you don't have to, I think you could save a ton of money. For sure. But I do think it can be hard to resist temptation like socially if that's something that you've seen 
a lot of your friends and family do. So agreed. Agreed. And as I said, I'm old. So there you go. <laughs> okay. So our next question says, hi, Jean. I'm wondering how to determine what's next on my money journey. I've done so much already. I'm happy to say my emergency savings bucket is funded. My 401k is maxed. I've invested in I-bonds and I have 529 plans in place for the kids. I have no credit card debt. I pay it off every month and use the miles to travel. And we use sinking funds to pay for known expenses like Christmas gifts, vacations, etc. So how does one think about what's next? I don't have an IRA, so maybe I should do that. I still have about 20 years to even think about retirement, and I feel good about where I am. Overall, I'm pretty excited about getting to this point, and I just want to continue doing what's best when it comes to financial decisions. Thank you so much for your guidance. Great question, and you have done so incredibly well that the thing I want most is for you to not feel like there is another box that you have to check off. For anybody who's wondering about the term sinking funds, sinking funds are just separately designated pools of money that you put aside for various items on your list, like a Christmas club for Christmas or a vacation fund for a vacation. And it's a way of saving in advance before you pay for something so that you don't go into debt to have to fund it. I would think about what you want. And I would think way into the future about what you want. You've already taken care, it sounds like, of the major items, the 401k, the emergency fund, the college for the kids. Do you want to buy a house? Do you want to take a year off and travel? Do you want to start a business or do you want to give back to a charity that is particularly meaningful to you? You could 100% park this money in a Roth IRA until you decide really what you want to do with it. But I would start dreaming a little bit and really focusing in on what's been sitting at the outer edges of your mind that you would like to do for yourself or for somebody else. And then I would start working your way toward that because it's really, really clear to me that you are good at working your way toward whatever you set your mind on. But congratulations on all the success that you've had so far. Yeah, I love what you said about start dreaming because I'm so proud of where she's at and everything she's accomplished. And it must be a really great position to be in to be able to have that mind space to think of all the amazing things that you could do. Yeah, exactly, Chelsea. That's right. It's mind space. This is what a stress-free financial life looks like. So congratulations on that. Thanks, Chelsea, for doing this today. And in today's Thrive, let's talk about the best budgeting tips for your 20s. We all know the importance of saving, investing, and planning for retirement, but sometimes just getting started can be one of the biggest challenges, especially if you're young. Maybe you just graduated from college, moved into your first apartment, started your full-time job. It can be a lot to handle, but my listeners know that when it comes to money, the earlier you start planning, the better off you'll be. That's why at hermoney.com, we've got a list of the best budgeting tips for your 20s. Number one is simple, make a budget. 
You can't plan out your future if you don't know where your money is going. So make it a habit to keep track of your spending on paper, in a spreadsheet, or with an app. Be proactive and set savings goals for the next few months and the next year so that you can work toward big milestones like buying a car. And remember, it's okay to start small. Saving even $10 a week is better than not saving at all. And speaking of savings, you also want to be working toward having an emergency fund. How big that should be depends on your job and your living situation, but On average, you want a range of six weeks to six months of expenses covered. Next, make sure you're tackling student loan debt and credit card debt. Prioritize paying off your highest interest rate debts first while making minimum payments on the rest so that more of your money goes to the principal. You can also automate your payments so that you don't have to worry about missing one. And finally, be sure that you are trying to take advantage of your job's retirement benefits. If your employer offers a 401k match, you want to try to max out those contributions so that you get the full match. If your employer doesn't offer a 401k, you can look at contributing to a Roth IRA It's a type of retirement account that allows you to pay taxes on your contributions now so that any earnings you get from your investments will be tax-free when you retire. The earlier you contribute, the more money you can gain in compound interest. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Helene Olin for giving us a big picture view of the labor market and how we should move forward to protect our rights as workers. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.